Dot.html is brought to you by the Cage Club Network for all things movies, music, media, comics, and more. Check out the Cage Club Network at cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. everybody, I'm Nico. And I'm Kevo. And this is MCU.html, and we're here to talk about Thor 2 The Dark World. Yes. Which, I don't know about you, but I thought was more like a light romp than a dark world. Yeah, there's a lot of, like, dark, gothic imagery, but the overall tone and attitude of the film itself is very lighthearted and fun. Other than the Ninth Doctor playing an elven gargoyle, it is a good time. And other than the rich, spoiled boys losing their mom, it's mostly just, you know good fun i was actually baffled because i feel like in the first movie i wasn't positive they'd said friga's name at any point i think ultimately they did but in this film not only did they say her name but she got to have lines yeah she's still not quite as well developed as i would have liked to see this character but she definitely has a ton of great moments a lot of badassery to be honest i also felt like her magic proved a pivotal point in the film it served as kind of a lethal weapon uh, tin cup <laughs> so I, I, I really enjoyed rewatching thor 2 the dark world if for no other reason i am now positive they've been trying to sell us on this loki retcon since basically avengers happened yeah i definitely see it so much of loki's actions in retrospect in places like here look a lot less sinister now that we know everything else that his character has done i think a lot of his actions in thor the dark world and the way this film leaves off not to get ahead of ourselves looked like he could have been going down a villainous path again but as we know he doesn't and if anything only continues to be an ally to thor i really do think they were pulling back on that villainous side of his character right away and I don't think they left the audience much room to disagree. Throughout the movie, they recast the characters in very different roles. Loki was a fine villain for the first Thor, but in this Thor, they have a greater villain than they can even fathom. They have Malekith. Uh, okay, you know, it's I do think the villains are the biggest problem in this film. The bad guy superpower is, you know, the last movie it was the Casket of Eternal Winters, Ancient Winters, Casket of Ancient Winters. It doesn't matter. In this movie, it's the Aether, and it's just one of those things you gotta, you kinda gotta accept how limitlessly powerful all of these devices make these bad guys and run with it. Well, that's the thing. When the superhero is the real world literal equivalent of a god, what sort of villain can you put someone like that up against? Especially because you are having lower level heroes running around needing to take on bad guys that are threats for them at their level. And part of what continues to happen is the Thor movies have to keep upping the stakes on a mystical level. You're going to have the Guardians of the Galaxy movies representing pretty much all of space. Mm. Even the ways in which Ragnarok is a space movie, it's still really grounded in that mysticism. That mysticism, right? It's like space mysticism. I think one thing I really enjoyed was that when we rewatched Thor, there was plenty of humor and... There's way more humor in the dark world than I remembered there being. It's actually kind of funny at times. 
Yeah, it's almost a comedy at times. Of course, it's a very sad, dramatic comedy, but that's kind of what the Marvel Cinematic Universe is becoming. Kevo, what's the BTS on TTDW? Yeah, that worked. Right? I had to do it real slow. I'm going to start on the weird one first. The cinematographer, Kramer Morgenthau, doesn't really have a ton of credits under his name that I found super noteworthy. He's collaborated with the director, Alan Taylor, before on Game of Thrones and would later be the cinematographer on his film Terminator Genesis, which isn't saying a lot. What's really notable about this dude is his family. His great-great-grandfather was one of the three founding Lehman Brothers. His great-grandfather was Henry Morgenthau, ambassador to the Ottoman Empire during World War I. His grandfather was Henry Morgenthau Jr., U.S. Treasury Secretary under Roosevelt. And his father was Henry Morgenthau III, who was an author and television producer who died at age 101. So, some pretty impressive lineage. Wow, that's like a Morgan Thunk. It's like a Morgan Thousand right there. Ah, you got there. I couldn't get there. Ah, that's okay. The next three categories are also very odd on this film. This could have been called Thor the Rotating Crew because. Every single person who was originally hired for these jobs eventually left due to creative differences. For example, first chosen to score Thor The Dark World was composer Carter Burwell, who I find most notable for scoring both the Twilight films and the original Buffy the Vampire Slayer film in 1992. You know, that's really funny that he scored two different vampire films and here's another very gothic, dark movie, but I wouldn't necessarily call Buffy a gothic vampire film. No, there were gothic elements to it, but it was certainly juxtaposed with the sunny and bright California of the early 90s. Now, I don't know much about Twilight because I have opted out of that nonsense, but I know the aesthetic the film had from having seen things of it, and I could I can see some qualities visually in common between things in this film and things I've seen about Twilight, so that doesn't strike me bizarrely that somebody like that might have these two things in common. And there's also other things on his credits list, like No Country for Old Men and The Born Identity and A Knight's Tale, which I can definitely see being very similar to Thor in terms of balancing medieval aesthetics with a more modern cast vibe, dialogue and story and performances. Looking on the Wikipedia, I can see he's actually done a number of the Coen Brother films, and it makes sense if he's done a Coen Brother film that he's done a number of the Coen Brother films. Due to creative differences, about a month after being hired, he decided to leave and was replaced by Brian Tyler, who scored the last film that we discussed, Iron Man 3, and will be returning for Avengers Age of Ultron. It really gives me the impression that it was a hugely last-minute decision to have Brian Tyler come on for this one, especially knowing that it interrupted the flow of his work on the Fast and the Furious franchise. Another little excuse to bring up BT? Take a shot. (laughs) It's actually funny, when I went to Brian Tyler's Wikipedia article, there's a thing at the top saying, if you're looking for BT, this is not him, basically. Meanwhile, if you go to BT's page half the time, it's like, if you're looking for BTS, this is not them. Nah. Ooh, and I did just discover that he is scoring the remake of What Women Want, What Men Want, starring Taraji P. Henson, so I'm pretty excited for that. 
Yeah, I'm all about that movie. Next up, we have director. Of course, the first Thor film was directed by the renowned Kenneth Branagh, and I'm sure a lot of people were curious as to why he did not return. In my research, I found that before Thor even came out, Marvel Studios addressed that Thor would go off on new adventures following the Avengers, to which Kenneth Branagh responded that it was kind of news to him. He was actually a little, like, snarky and cheeky about Marvel's confidence that there would be a Thor 2. Said that he was thrilled they're that confident, but would wait for the audience to tell us whether there should be a second one. Eventually, in June of 2011, it was officially announced that Kenneth Branagh would not be returning. It doesn't sound like he maybe had the greatest time or enjoyed the experience of working with a studio that that was that controlling. Perhaps one of the things is because Kenneth Branagh was used to being so respected and one of the many things we have heard about working within the Marvel Cinematic Universe is it's a little difficult to see your specific vision through to the end. Perhaps it was just not the experience he was looking for. That does seem to agree with a lot of what I read on the subject. I mean, basically, when you're making an MCU film, in some ways, you have to be Marvel's bitch because you are working as a team with a bunch of other people. You need to be able to sacrifice things. And it seems like that was a little bit more difficult for Kenneth Branagh. There was also a lot of post-production that he wasn't used to that was very time-consuming. And he said as much as he enjoyed the process overall, he was good. He was good. And I think it comes down to whether or not you want to make a film that's part of a universe or you want to make a film. Making a film that's part of a universe means your film is going to change retroactively. Other films are going to change the way you look at the previous films. Part of what we've been discussing is how the reveal that Loki was under the control of the Scepter retroactively changes the events of Avengers. And it's unfortunately that necessity for interconnectivity and respecting characterization that will go on after you that costs Marvel Cinematic Universe what would have been its first female director. In September of 2011, Patty Jenkins was signed on briefly to direct Thor The Dark World. Like Wonder Woman Patty Jenkins? Yes, Wonder Woman Patty Jenkins was actually going to direct Thor The Dark World. Oh man, I really would have liked to see that. I'm not sure if I would have. Once again, it's a person who left the project due to creative differences. What she was looking to make was more of a Romeo and Juliet type film. Thor was forbidden from going to help Jane, and Malekith was hiding the dark energy on Earth because he knew Odin didn't care about Earth. I don't know. It, it sounds like a very strange film. I don't know if that's really super in characterization for Odin, and that's part of the issue we're even talking about here okay so that does not necessarily sound like it has the best understanding of thor at least the romeo and juliet aspect would not really work here it also doesn't really fit after the first film which really did not feel like the setup for a romeo and juliet story and you can see bits that are sort of like that. Not everybody is the warmest and most approving of the idea of Thor being with Jane, but nothing so dramatic as what I would call actually Romeo and Juliet worthy. Absolutely. And I like it better that way. I think that's so hyper dramatic and unnecessary. I talk a lot about how oppressive the heterosexuality of this franchise can be at times. Even when it's all over a film like this, I don't think I felt like it was oppressive in this film so much as simply omnipresent. It was definitely omnipresent. The love story between Thor and Jane definitely drives the film, but it doesn't overwhelm the film. 
And I feel like this would have. So as much as I want more female directors, more females in every aspect of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I don't think this is a vision I would have liked for the film. Absolutely, but Patty Jenkins, please come back to the Marvel Cinematic Universe and try your hand at every single other character. I'm sure there is one where you're just going to knock it out. Yeah, and we got, you know, so much coming and so much left to do after Phase 3 wraps up. So please, Patty Jenkins, we know you're listening to our podcast. Go work for Marvel, because that's absolutely going to be what drives you to do it. Since we're definitely the first people to make this suggestion at all, I'm sure. Of course. So the job ultimately went to director Alan Taylor. He is not a director who is known for any blockbusters whatsoever. There's this and then Terminator Genesis that follows, which, uh, from what I am aware, is not super liked. It's not the critical darling of the franchise. Yeah, mostly what he's known for other than this is television and frankly a fuck ton of HBO. We're talking Oz, Sex in the City, Sopranos, Six Feet Under, Carnival, Rome, Big Love, Boardwalk Empire, Game of Thrones. He was nominated for an Emmy for directing that as well as the pilot for Mad Men. I imagine the pilot for Mad Men probably gave him the credit. Oh, and the Game of Thrones stuff, to be honest. It sounds like the right critical material to garner him a job like this, even if he didn't have the most experience with this material. Yeah, he talked a lot about how his work on Game of Thrones helped with doing Thor. He said in both cases it's using the conceit of a fantastical alien world to make fresh what is really a domestic drama, which is something that we've been talking a lot about. Our pitch of Thor and Loki as trust fund bros set against a Shakespearean Norse mythology background. That we are basically saying that Thor is the OC, but instead... Loki is the the Seth Cohen is not is the adopted one and Thor isn't so much new to town but he's stranded without his hammer and his chainmail so it's like it's like Ryan and Seth grew up together and Seth was always in Ryan's shadow and Ryan grows up to be a douchebag so the dad banishes him to Chino instead and that's what makes him a good person And then Seth finds the casket of ancient winters. Interesting. I'm going to have to write this now. Speaking of writing, let's talk about who wrote this dang thing. Well, as you may remember, the person who took the final pass on the Thor script was Don Payne, who was brought back to write a script for Thor The Dark World. Eventually, his script was rewritten, though he is still given credit for the story. And in fact, this film is dedicated in part to him because he passed away from bone cancer March before this film came out. Oh, that's super sad. Yes. Awkward segue. So the person hired to rewrite Don Payne's script was Robert Rodat, who is possibly best known for his Oscar-nominated script for Saving Private Ryan, or perhaps best known for the 1996 family film Fly Away Home, where Anna Paquin and Jeff Daniels rehabilitate a flock of baby geese. I kind of feel like if you combine Saving Private Ryan with Fly Away Home, you sort of do get Thor. We gotta go back to Earth and rescue our buddy Thor, who's stranded where his hammer is, and then we all have to fly back to Asgard, a bunch of Asgisians. Anyway, he also wrote the script for The Patriot, and weirdly wrote a film called The Catcher Was a Spy, that is, I believe, an adaptation of a novel that starred Paul Rudd last year. Did you know that Paul Rudd starred in a spy thriller in last year? 
I didn't know Paul Rudd did anything but Ant-Man. I didn't know Paul Rudd did anything but Ant-Man and, like, I guess small indie stuff. Maybe it was a small indie spy thriller that just wasn't on the radar. I thought it was just this and weird comedies. All right. So if you want to go watch something where Paul Rudd plays a spy, that's out there. He also created the show Falling Skies that ran on sci-fi for 52 episodes. That's not bad. Then here's the weird part. He's also only credited as writing the story for Thor The Dark World. The people credited as writing the script are comic writer Christopher L. Yost, and then the combination of Marcus and McFeely, who helm the Captain America franchise. I couldn't find anywhere in the news where it's noted that it was passed to them it's just suddenly the people who wrote the original script aren't credited anymore i don't understand at what point they were given the film i wonder if Payne and rodat were on an earlier version perhaps one of the versions attached to one of the earlier directors and enough of the meat and bones of it was still used story-wise i do think it's interesting christopher yost wrote this as well Christopher Yost is a guy who is well-known in the comic circles for writing specifically controversial runs. His big entrance to the comic world was after creating the character of X-23 for X-Men Evolution. He brought her over to comics after Joe Quesada did a short run on NYX featuring her. The book that they wrote featured a lot of killing teenagers, just like a lot of, that teenager blew up in that bus accident. That teenager blew up in that bomb accident. That teenager got murdered by those bad people. It was really a hyper-dramatic era for X-Men. Chris Yost was the guy who did most of the more hyper-dramatic stuff. He was never a bad writer. I just don't think his stuff from that era holds up quite so well. It's interesting to me that he does hyper-dramatic stuff with teenagers because he doesn't have much else on his filmography as a writer, but two of the things that he wrote are the Marvel animated direct-to-DVD film Next Avengers Heroes of Tomorrow, which deals with the teenage children of Avengers uh, forming a team. And he wrote the film adaptation for the Max Steel action figure franchise, which is, again, starring and aimed at that age group. He also wrote a script called Silver and Black, which was going to be a Silver Sable Black Cat film that eventually got split into two separate films instead, which I believe are still happening and are going to be part of the Sony Spider-Verse that has Venom in it. So those will be pretty cool if they eventually come to fruition. I don't want the Sony Spider-Verse. I'm getting too overwhelmed. The Sony Spider-Verse, does that have our Spider-Man in it? Is Tom Holland in that Spider-Verse? <sighs> Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. I think it's possible that the Tom Holland Spider-Man films are the only nexus between the Sony Spider-Verse and the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's hard for me to tell. I don't think that Marvel Studios loves that they have to continue doing this. I think they're just counting the minutes, personally. I don't blame them. It's a complicated situation. So for me, this movie, like many of these movies, has three beginnings. We have that prologue, we have the Earth stuff, and we have the Asgard stuff. And I feel like you need all three to really understand what they're trying to say with this movie right out of the gate. Okay, yeah. I, you know, the Earth stuff starts a little late, not for about 13 minutes. So it feels a little distant to be thought of as a beginning, but I don't think you're wrong either. 
the highlight of the beginning for me is Boar. Oh my god, Boar. Odin's dad, Boar? So fucking cool. Yeah, that was pretty cool. Odin's dad, Boar, played a significant role in the J. Michael Straczynski run. You may remember J. Michael Straczynski was one of the people involved in writing Thor's first film. So it was really great to see Boar, a character who has been a part of the mythos forever and had even recently played a part, have a part now. Yeah, and he was actually played by the dude who plays Van Gogh in Series 5 of Doctor Who, which I know is a beloved episode among fans of the franchise. Fascinating. I would have never assumed that that guy is the same size as the guy that does the other thing. But then again, Lee Pace in The Hobbit and Lee Pace in Guardians, so... Yeah, exactly. But back to Thor. I think one of the things that bothered me a little bit about the introduction of this film is how long it took to really get to anything going on. I totally am happy that they're just showing us that Asgard is having an as-gay old time. But one of the things that was missing was a real sense of what was going on in Asgard. I feel like we saw this really beautiful panorama of a portrait. Yeah, okay. Uh, I, I think they definitely leaned heavily focusing on the action versus explaining everything going on in the plot. It's not that it's not there, but it's clear what they were paying attention to and producing it. One thing for sure, right away, frat boy Thor is gone. Right off. I don't know it's that he's gone so much as he's evolved. There's a lot of that cockiness that we saw in pre-banishment Thor in the opening battle, but it's an evolved version of it. Oh, absolutely. He's no longer a cocky frat boy. Now he's an alpha. Now he really is capable of being king. He is worthy. And some of that cockiness is the sureness that he needs to carry on his back so that no one will question his authority as the mighty Thor. I think it's really important to note that I don't feel like he's about to sneak off for hijinks with his friends to drink. It doesn't feel like he's that guy again. I feel like he is duty-bound to his throne. He took responsibility for his brother. We're in a really interesting place in Thor's personal narrative, and we get everything about the ether and the convergence, and what's the other thing they keep calling it? The lineup, whatever. The alignment. Right, so we get this whole backstory about how Malachith was the bad dark elf, so they had to banish him to the bad place, and now he gets to come back. Maybe it's just because I was brought up in America, but Dark Elf is a really hard concept to take seriously as a villain. I think because elves are more silly in American pop culture, so we don't have as much a concept of Dark Elves, like, from Germanic lore. Yeah, and you know what? They're a little bit gay. Okay. Like, they're a little bit- elves, not Dark Elves. Yeah, well, they're a little bit femsy, silly. Like, if you take a look at what Malekith is like in the comic books, he's very puckish. He's very- you know, I don't want to, I, I don't, I, there's something wrong with me because I was almost like, he's kind of like, Christian B. Gorder, I'm going to defeat me them Thor. But like, he's, he's kind of like a, a funny, I guess that's a leprechaun, I guess. I guess I think of him like a big, tall leprechaun. Okay. I think when we were discussing this at one point, I compared him to like Mixes Pitlick from Superman. Yeah. You know, kind of, kind of like, um, if like a Slenderman school had like a class clown. Okay, I get you. And that's definitely not what this guy is. Not so much. And, you know, I think it's that Chris Eccleston can't help but deliver everything with this overdramatic sense of foreboding eternal sadness. Well, hey, I actually have a thing that I just learned. So apparently, Mads Mikkelsen was in talks to play this villain. Shout out to Tori, who I know is a big fan of the reason he had to turn this role down, Hannibal. 
Due to the previous commitments to that show, he had to exit the project, and Chris Eccleston entered final negotiations to play the villain only a month before filming began, and the whole thing was wrapped within three. So it was within a whole four-month period, basically, that Chris Eccleston signed on and completed this role. That is overwhelming, but does explain some of the rushed feel of the performance. On the whole, the entire movie feels kind of rushed. I want to say before I say anything more negative or, or positive about the film, I like the film enough, but it is highly unremarkable. Yes, absolutely. It is a very enjoyable film, but it certainly doesn't have many long-lasting consequences on the MCU as a whole. And that's okay. And with the exception of a few sequences that take place on other worlds, there aren't a whole lot of memorable visuals from this film either. No, I definitely agree there. I definitely agree. It's a lot of drab, gray, gothic, or just extended shots of Asgard from what we already saw in the first film. And as with the first film, Asgard is beautiful. And it's filled with the characters we already love. I will comment that I am not as big a fan of the switched fan droll. Not, not... Yeah, I agree. No offense, Zachary Levy. But Josh Dallas is... Oh, oh hey, Daddy. God. What's, What's up? up, boy? Yeah. Give me a call when you need a daddy, kid. But <laughs> so I think that it's just such a great performance in the first film for fan droll. Here... Yeah, there's a few things that I'm not as crazy about as well. Number one, I liked that in the first film, there wasn't necessarily a romance between Thor and Sif. And here there's some sort of stilted, awkward nonsense. Yes, it's really uncomfortable. It was really unnecessary. I understand that there's context for it in the comics, but we went out of our way to not really put it in the first film. It's just thrown in needlessly here, especially because other than Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., we are never going to see Sif again. Which is heartbreaking because she's a great character and this is a great performance. I accept that it's because the actress has blind spot. I think yes. She has a show on CBS. It did give us Tessa Thompson's Valkyrie, which is like the greatest gift mm. anyone could have had. But in a perfect world, I'd have both. True. Very true. I think it's interesting the way the opening of this film balances closing out the threads left over from the Avengers and the first Thor film. The Thor scenes deal with the consequences from that and him destroying the Bifrost and the chaos that it created and finishing bringing peace back to the realms. Meanwhile, the trial of Loki wraps up basically everything to do with what's going to happen to this character now. We see his parents deal with him. We see him put in prison. Other than that, there's nothing really dangling from the Avengers that hasn't been dealt with in these first two films, Iron Man 3 and Thor The Dark World. And I think it's important that they had to utilize the franchises that they felt were the best fleshed out to do so. Captain America literally needs an entire new film cast. His characters cannot come over with him from yeah. his first film. So for all intents and purposes, Cap is a reboot starting with the second film. Yes. Utilizing Bucky is a great way to do so and have ties back to the first film. But it was only Thor who was magically fleshed out by virtue of his brother being the villain of the Avengers. That, that gave us more Asgard to believe in and understand. And Iron Man already having had two films. These were the two characters who could help execute the rest of the Phase 1 fallout. Yeah, basically. 
And so we finally reach Earth, and we finally see Jane and Darcy once again. It's a really charming reintroductory scene, but I gotta say, I found Jane's date a lot less charming on this watch-through. And I felt like he served less of a purpose. There was nothing there. Yeah, and the fact that he immediately thought Darcy was their waitress, even though she's standing there wearing a scarf and an overcoat, you're not very bright, are you, sir? I feel less bad about the fact that we are a little bit probably supposed to be laughing at this guy being cucked by Thor. I know that's your favorite thing to talk about. (laughs) Yeah, this network. Yeah, well, it's right there. A lot of Jane's part of this story feels very much, it feels very rom-com-ish. We are immediately given the very clear impression that Jane is not over the fact that she hasn't seen Thor again and has basically made her life about that. I don't love it. I think that they kind of portrayed a really weird, sad depiction of everybody from the first Thor film, particularly poor Selvig. Yeah, that's true. Selvig is put in such a sad position. But I think one of the things that's more annoying than anything is that Jane goes from hyper obsessed with you know trying to find thor and get back to thor to being in exactly the right place at the right time yeah that is it is very unfortunate you know i want to forgive because the only other way they could have done the story would be if it was someone else who was infected by the ether that jane came across and that's why they were interacting it's really just cutting out a middle character that they were not going to have the time to give any development to and probably just would have died Whereas we know Natalie Portman's not going to die. And I would have been sitting there saying this person isn't really anything big from the comics or, yeah, you know, there'd be no great reason to have another character. I thought that point of yours was great because the both of us kept sitting there going, of course, it's Jane. But once you pointed out, yeah, this just saves a character. It actually streamlined the movie and made the movie less silly in some ways. But unfortunately, that's hard to see when all you're thinking is, wait, she just happens to be the person to walk through and get infected by the ether. Initially, the storyline that pulls Jane Foster into the Asgardian side of things has to do with dropping shoes down a big staircase. Which, as we mentioned earlier, is part of the comedic aspect of this film. They introduce this dramatic concept of these... I don't know, reality black holes? Yeah, like portals, like holes in space. And they find a really cute and fun way to do it. I really do like the new character that they have introduced, the intern to Darcy's intern, Ian, mostly because he's cute. I enjoy the character. It's a little awkward that she continuously sexually harasses him. I actually think it's awkward that he's there at all in a lot of regards, but I think it's because we couldn't imagine Darcy by herself in all of these shots in the first movie anytime darcy wasn't with jane in a shot she was probably with selvig here it would have constantly been darcy dodging flying cars on her own yeah and selvig is not enough of sound mind for her to have been able to play off of him the way that she did in the verse thor film i wouldn't say it's even five minutes from the first time jane encounters the aether to Thor shows up and gets slapped in the face. Yeah, I... Okay, Jane's gonna hit a few gods in this movie, and here's the thing. I don't want to say... I don't want to give a pass on violence of any kind, but she does know they're gods. It's really even more tame than spitting in their faces. She knows they're not even feeling it. I'm just glad none of them smote her. 
Yeah, there is that. I also, while watching this, I couldn't help thinking that the way that Thor explains his absence, a lot of people, if they heard someone else, like if they were Jane's girlfriend and they heard the story, probably would have been like, are you fucking kidding me? He told you he had space shit. We know he's telling the truth, but she does sort of buy it a little bit too quickly, if you think about it. Agreed. A lot of this movie is just really convenient, and everything moves along just as fast as it has to to get to the next scene. But, like, at the same time, he's Thor, and he looks like Chris Hemsworth, and he's gonna take you to space. Like, how are you not charmed by the whole thing? Well, in a move that I have to assume cut down on location shooting and super made green screen time easier for Natalie Portman, Jane Foster winds up in Asgard for the bulk of this film. I don't know if I'd say bulk, but we definitely are about to spend a significant chunk of time on Asgard. It's half an hour into the film that Thor takes Jane with him through the Bifrost, and I like all this stuff. It's a really fun juxtaposition of the first film where Thor was the fish out of water on Earth, and now Jane is a fish out of water on Asgard. It's cute. I also think they did a really good job bringing it back to the Asgardians. I enjoy a lot of the time we spent here with Frigga and Loki. Yes. I think that's a really great scene. I do think I en- okay. I really enjoy how much everybody's like, "You get your tricks from mother, but I have her eyes and got the bassinet that was intended for her and her blanket and was also the favorite and she makes my soup." And I mean, if we're going to come down on Thor, we have to also come down on Loki who screams at his mom, he's not my father, when talking about Odin and like baby bitch boy. And then when your mom says, am I not your mother? And you're like, no, you're not my mom. Oh my God, you're so emo. Your mom doesn't have to come visit you in prison, you know? Well, she's not going to come visit him anymore, is she? Yeah, right? Like that should teach you to throw temper tantrums. So... Before we get to anybody getting skewered, we have the most unbelievably hard-to-imagine sort of exposition sequence where Odin's like, Yes, well, the convergence is coming, and everything will learn up. And I have this old book, and there's pictures in it, and I'm going to vaguely reference the Infinity Stones, but only, like, just a little bit. And Jane is kind of like, yeah. I'm an Earth scientist. I understand all of this. None of this is over my head. I'm not intimidated by anyone here. You know, the more we're talking about this, the more I kind of need to not pay attention to, like, most of the dialogue in this movie, and then it's pretty fine. I actually don't think the dialogue itself is bad, because I know I enjoyed it at the time. It all plays well. It's more when you examine what is being said. And what everyone is doing. Because in, in, in the moment, in a very Iron Man-ish way, everyone is very natural, the dialogue is very smooth, and we're very entertained. But when you play it back, it's... He really does have a little picture book. He does. Now, are there any other moments that stand out before the Siege of Asgard begins? The only other note that I have, I wrote down a little poetic waxing during the scene where Odin is describing Malekith only has this moment to strike, and once the realms pass out of alignment, the connection will be lost. And I thought of it as a really interesting metaphor for the connection between Jane and Thor. A connection between a god and a mortal is inevitably fleeting, and they can really only enjoy this moment while it lasts. Eventually, the vision that Thor is going to have in Age of Ultron is going to set him on a path 
that Jane just can't follow being who she is. It's really sad that we never got to see any sort of scene of them closing out. It literally just would have even taken one, but at least all the threads are there and it's it can be understood what happens between them after this. Yeah, because this movie ends with them having a happy reunion and we know that this is the last time we ever see Jane Foster in the Marvel Cinematic Universe through now. But we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. So the Battle of Asgard is so... It's really beautiful. I have to say that first. Yes. But it does feel kind of difficult to follow at times. It's very nonstop. It's very over the top. And there is a general sense of how are they going to win? Yeah, especially when they keep escalating the stakes after every victory. You know, Heimdall senses the stealth ship and jumps on it and stabs it to death. And then it turns out there's a whole fleet. They raise the shield around the palace and, you know, you're not sure if it's going to get up in time to stop this ship from crashing in. And it does. But then it turns out that the guy who's on the inside can just destroy the shield anyway. So they keep, it's not exactly, I wouldn't say stalling for time, but we keep getting these victories that are immediately defeated anyway. I don't know if it's supposed to be some sort of like poetic justice that, haha, they have the exact plan they need to save the day and they did it with just enough, oh no, they didn't. But it does start to feel overwhelming. That does bring us to one of the best moments in the film, which is also one of the worst moments in the film. Frigga's defense of Jane Foster is incredible. Yes, absolutely. I love the moment where she tells Thor that she'll take care of her and she walks off and just, without even a glance, snatches a sword off a passing soldier. So badass. It's disappointing that this is all we get of Frigga and that she tragically dies in the battle against Malekith, but that she dies using magic and getting the best of him. She really does play him and it's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Thor's vengeance is one of the most palpable moments in the film. I swear, it's like one of the heaviest the hammer ever sounds. Yeah, he thunderslaps that guy for killing his mom. And the lightning that he unleashes on Malekith's face leaves Malekith disfigured for the rest of the film. Yes, it does. Frigga's funeral is one of the lovelier scenes in the film. Yeah, and it uses a variation of the Thor and Asgard theme. It's a really beautiful sequence. I also think that the way they handle telling Loki is kind of gross. Oh my god, I literally wrote down in all caps, they sent someone to tell Loki about Frigga. Holy shit, those cowards. It's a really tense part of the film. And it's the part of the film where you know that Loki is going to have to work with them at some point to get revenge for his mom. Oh, oh, definitely. His motivations are still questionable, and whether or not he really is, you know, returned to the fold never becomes clear. Certainly not in this film. They definitely, there are going to be a lot of sequences where he is clearly genuine and loyal, and there are sequences where it's hard to tell what his motives or intentions are. After a little bit of boring stuff on Earth, we do come back to Asgard in a big, big way. I do only have to point out one important thing. That is where we get our Stamio for this film. Uh, Stamio! Stan plays a psych ward patient whose shoe Eric uses in his demonstration. Thanks for the Stamio, Stan. And we get Odin being petulant. 
Yeah, we see Odin behaving a little bit like Thor did in Thor, which, you know, good. It's good to see a man be that grief-stricken over his wife. And that brings us to the team-up that had to happen. Yeah, Thor goes to talk to his brother and we get the line that was in every single commercial, you must be truly desperate to come to me for help. And this leads us to everybody's favorite moment in the movie, when Loki transforms into Captain America. Oh, that is such a cute sequence. I only recently discovered that first Tom Hiddleston filmed it in the Captain America costume. And yes, that is in fact the Captain America theme that they play over that sequence, which this movie is such a weird intersection because that means that we have a bit of Alan Silvestri score from Captain America. The mid credit sequence is directed by James Gunn from the Guardians of the Galaxy end of things. Thor is like this bizarre hybrid and Joss Whedon apparently wrote a bunch of scenes for this movie. Alan Taylor talked about how Joss Whedon was basically airlifted in to rewrite several scenes and then just disappeared into the night. So Thor's just got a bit of everything in it. Wow, that's amazing. I really appreciate that because in a lot of ways, it kind of feels like that. And that shines a lot of light on places where this movie maybe wasn't the most consistent. Fair. The high energy intensity of the escape from Asgard into the aether dimension i believe that is the dark world there's a name for it but it's one of those complicated norse names that i'm just not going to get the dark world that's where they escape to so they escape to the dark world where there's so many moments in this bit of the film that are really what i would have preferred more of the film to be it's this great little bit between thor and loki and there's a ton of times where you think Thor might really have his brother's trust, and there's a bunch of times where it's pretty clear that Loki can't wait to betray him again, and it leads us to a pretty cool deception. Yeah, and it was a great use of the Warriors and Sif as well. The betray him and I'll kill you gag from every one of the Warriors is really cute and adorable as an unwitting send-off since we're not going to see these characters again. I think we actually do see the Warriors 3 in Ragnarok for a moment. I believe we see Volstag in Ragnarok, and that is the only of the Warriors 3 and Sif that we see. Jeez, it's just a bummer to lose the characters. But again, great send-off. Absolutely. I love the little, if you cough, you might miss it. Uh, when Loki delivers them to the Dark World, he gives a ta-da. It's deeply amusing. It's pretty great. I really enjoy that they gave Tom Hiddleston humor to work with instead of him having to, like, force it into the script. Yes. They also even managed to give him heroic moments in this film. Yes, that's one of the things that I love about the confrontation between them and Malekith. I can't remember if I fell for the gag that Loki had turned on them there. I want to say I didn't because it's hard to believe that they would cut off Thor's arm. But it's really worth noting that in that ruse, Loki protects Jane. Hey, not too far after this, they're going to take one of Thor's eyes. So the idea of body torturing Thor's parts off isn't too far away. I also find it annoying that this movie is filled with so many, we won, no we didn't, we won, no we didn't. And the way Thor dispatches the Aether and then doesn't is so annoying. Yeah, if he's going to get it, just let him get it already. I'm tired of all the start and stops. Because you're right, it just does feel like buying time. Yeah, but I like all the stuff with our mains, at least. I like all the Thor, Loki, and Jane stuff. Even though we know that Loki isn't going to die, I love his little death scene here. 
he seems almost genuine in his emotion toward Thor. He doesn't have to say all that crap. And they don't let you think he's dead for very long, so it's quickly fixed. Yeah, that's actually sort of annoying. It's only a few minutes later that we are immediately shown an Asgardian soldier who's clearly morphing from Loki. The only other really important thing before we come to the climax of the film is the cute shoe phone moment that brings back the date from earlier. That's about it. It's one of the only moments of Jane and Thor having a semi-normal relationship where they're having trouble after a big fight in public. It's it was a it was an excellent use of comedy to further the plot along. You know, at the beginning you don't think anything is going to come of them dropping these shoes through a hole and no one thinks about the fact that sometimes they don't come back and then there it is. It turns out to be a huge element of the plot. But other than that being their method of return to Earth and regrouping with the others back in London to figure out a plan, that's really all that's left before the battle with Malekith. First thing I think about this battle when this battle comes to mind is this isn't a battle that I feel like the movie worked towards so much as the movie just sub like cues into. It's it, battle time. It was a foregone conclusion and that's a really odd way to introduce the climax of a film. It's a really odd plot to have. It's very Buffy, the Hellmouth is going to open whether you like it or not, so this is what we're going to be doing at the end of the season. And one of the things I love the most that you've brought up throughout our discussion of this film is that the ultimate way to defeat the bad guy is run the clock. Yeah, essentially. They're just supposed to hold him from doing his thing for long enough until the alignment passes, which we're told is going to happen pretty quick. Now, is that the alignment or the convergence? (sighs) So... One of the things about this is that they do just sort of accept that the Aether will make Malachite too powerful to defeat, so they just need to hold him back. This will become a major thread in Avengers movies as well. There really is no outright defeating Ultron. There is no outright defeating Thanos. There's just kind of holding them back. Okay. I feel in a lot of ways, like, this starts that sort of like, uh, the bad guys are getting too big and too bad, because... Before this, we really haven't had a too big and too bad bad guy. It's been Ironmonger. It's been the Abomination, Whiplash, and, you know, by extension, Hammer. Yeah, no one's really freaking out there. The Destroyer, Loki, the invasion of the Chitauri, which is not really like an overwhelming god figure. Killian from the last film, Iron Man, not a big god figure. Next movie... Not a big supernatural figure. The next time we get a super powerful, oh man, he's too powerful bad guy, is going to be Ronan the Accuser in Guardians of the Galaxy. And this was sort of the introduction of that bigger-than-life villain that's going to start to dominate not just the Avengers film, pretty much any team film where you need a cosmic-level bad guy to hold the good guys back. I get what you're saying. I would say that the threat in Winter Soldier is large, but it's not a person. It's an ideology and it's a group, but that is very different from having a monolithic figure to focus that on. Oh man, I just had this really funny idea of all of Hydra being like, no, no, we want, we want the Infinity Stones. We're going to all of us use them at once. Everybody just kind of like pinky on the glove. There's just certain powers and certain abilities that don't make sense for certain villains. So 
Hydra can't be a Thor villain. Oh, it, yeah. It would never work. You need a super hyper-powerful being. And at the same time, as much as the Cap versus Thanos stuff was gut-wrenching in a really good way, you don't think, man, if Cap could just land that punch on Ronan's head. <laughs> Other than that, Jumping Realms was really pretty. It was really great to see Thor need help to do the big thing. This was just another one of those look at us rush into the climax of the film moments. Oh, Darcy gets things going with her love interest slash intern slash victim. I don't know. I like that she dips him when they kiss. That's pretty cute. But like the guy you refuse to call his name to his own consternation throughout the film, you just friggin' plant one on. I don't know. Yeah. The movie rushes towards a delightful ending, and I mean that, delightful. It just sort of ends, and it's kind of like, hey, what's up, and Thor is now over, and that's that. Yeah, there's a moment at the climax where Jane chooses to die with Thor. I don't know if everyone caught that that's sort of what happened there when Malekith's spaceship started to fall. That was pretty intense, but again, it speaks to the intensity of their relationship, I'd say. It can also be read as this creature from another world is willing to die on ours for something that has nothing to do with him. Ultimately, Malekith being evil and insane and the Aether existing has nothing to do with anything Odin or Thor or Loki has done. This was going to happen no matter what because the convergence point is best here on Earth. Yes. Thor has come here and is willing to sacrifice his life having just lost his mother to the same cause because it's what's right. You could see it as she is willing to die on Earth as one of Earth for the same cause that this god has chosen to sacrifice his life. And I think that's also a powerful read. Kind of ties into how she's Thor in the comics for a while. Ha ha ha. Wait mm. till we get to that era in X's for podcast. So <laughs> I think this movie rushes towards its conclusion just like Thor did. Yes, we do. After the battle, first we get another rom-com-ish scene of... Team Jane Foster sitting around her breakfast table, all going back to being normal humans after being involved in this otherworldly drama. And then we get Thor talking to his dad, as he believes. I don't know exactly how I feel about this scene of Thor being like, I don't want to be king for a little while. I want to go bang my girlfriend instead. I actually have it in my note as dad, I can't be homecoming as Guardian King. I'm Avengers quarterback so it's one of those things and he needed to be back on earth for avengers age of ultron and having been working with the team for a while but especially knowing that asgard is not in safe hands it feels a little irresponsible of him i also i literally remember being in the theater at the time of the at the time watching the film and thinking did loki even wait until thor was out of the room before transforming back into himself it feels like it was pretty immediate what if thor turned around i can even imagine the sequence where he's watching thor walk away and he transformed back and he's like oh brother what was that oh uh, uh, oh loki loki what are you where's dad how did you the whole thing would just completely unravel, but that's kind of the magic of the Marvel Cinematic Universe films. You have to close your eyes at the right time and hope for the best. <laughs> that's great. Uh, and that's it for the film proper. We then get to mid-credits sequences. Uh, first, we get a little bit more of Sif and Volstag, where they deliver the reality stone to the Collector, who we will meet again in a film that 
comes out nearly a year later, Guardians of the Galaxy. Guardians of the Galaxy is a marked turning point for the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It really changed a lot. It showed that you could start with a team film instead of building toward it. So much of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, if you really look at the first nine entries in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, it's building toward a team and then the fallout from having created it. Guardians is a self-contained team all in and of itself. Yeah, which is a wild, wild difference. And then we get the boring post credit scene where Jane and Thor reunite. On the rooftop from the room is what it looks like. And you just want to be like a man like that. Where in the hell did you meet a man like that? personal level i remember the second captain america movie being a humongous motivator in my decision to become more fitness obsessed than i'd been i saw that this guy that i thought was always very fit and very aesthetic became this larger than life creature in captain america one and then chris evans just stepped it up again and he was this realized version of a superhero i feel like chris evans and hugh jackman just kept trying to outdo each other for several films Other than that, I'm pretty sure this is the first one that has Black Widow. This one doesn't have Black Panther, okay? This one has Falcon. Oh, God, does it. And then this one uh, doesn't have Baron Zemo, right? Correct. Okay. Does this one have Peggy? Yes, but she dies. Oh. Sorry. Spoiler alert if does you this haven't one... seen the MCU before. Does this one have Sharon? Yes. Ooh, okay. Awkward. So, um, all right. I don't remember anything about this movie, but him in that white t-shirt. Yeah. And the elevator sequence. Oh, that elevator sequence. Oh, that one's in the- Crossbones! Yeah. I love Crossbones. Okay, Crossbones is in this one. I remember that. Oh, because he blows up at the beginning of the next one. Yeah. You know, a lot of people really say they love Winter Soldier, and I respect that, but I don't really get as much from it. I'm hoping that I get a different perception on this watch. I guess we're going to see. I mostly find it to be a downer. I like a lot of the cast interplay. I like Cap building a new team for himself, and I like the things that it's going to set up for Captain America's Civil War, but Robert Redford is such a dick in it and the hydra stuff is so super dark i don't like nazis big surprise so i don't love this everyone is hydra reveal and that takes a lot of the enjoyment out of the film for me but especially now where we are 20 films into the franchise i'm hoping i'll have a different perspective with the watch that we're doing I'm hoping that something stands out because unfortunately it feels like Captain America films are touchstones in his personal timeline more than they are defining moments in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Although I guess I can't say that because the third one is a fucking Avengers movie. Yes, yes it is. Well, until we're ready to talk about the big man himself, Kevo, where can everybody find you? You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Kevo Really, K-E-V-O-R-E-A-L-L-Y. And as always, you can check out our awesome inclusive webcomic, Kid Riot, at KidRiotComics.com. You can also find my music stuffs over at Facebook.com slash ActionDuo, where I make throwback R&B with my buddy. 
You can check me out on Now and Again with my best friend Chris, where we cover the Now That's What I Call Music Volumes in order here on Cage Club, as well as my show, X's for Podcast, that I am lucky enough to host with this guy here, Kevo, as well as our boyfriend Jonah and my best friend Kyle. And we're taking a look at the X-Men comic book franchise, starting with Giant Size X-Men number one, and we're getting to some really good stuff. we got Dark Phoenix Saga coming up soon. If you're a fan of the stuff I just talked about, you're probably going to be a fan of the rest of the stuff here on the Cage Club Network. So please give a listen to the rest of the material here, and then go on over to the Patreon and support, because who knows, you could even pick what comes next. And don't forget to check me out on Instagram at NicoAction, N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Okay, <sighs> let's put down the hammer and pick up the shield. Crack a thumb.